0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Austin, or as Torrin likes to call me, Mr. Austin. Uh, If you come up to me and you don't call me Mr., I only respond to Mr. Austin. So don't even try coming at me with just my first name. Mr. is required this morning. (laughs) Hey, can we just, like, give it up for those Baptists, like, one more time? Like, oh. Like, I truly feel like I could just, like, walk off and we could be done this morning. Like, that was just so good. Uh, Hudson, the last one. Uh, to be baptized. He wisely handed me his phone moments before getting baptized. We really wanted to baptize his phone too this morning, but that's all right. Uh, Hey, I want to know, are there any picky eaters in the room this morning? We got any picky eaters? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Yeah, we got one, two, a couple. We got some in the front row. All right, all right. Hey, I'm a picky eater, all right? So you're not alone. Uh, It's kind of in my blood, like I've always been a picky eater. I've tried to get better. I think I have gotten better in some ways, but I've always been that way. One of the foods that I did like, though, eating as a kid was salad. And you're like, what? That's a weird food for, like, a kid who is a picky eater. It's kind of healthy, isn't it? Well, let me clarify, okay? The kind of salad that I liked was the salad with, like, bacon bits and, like, a bag of cheese dumped on the top with, like, a loaf of bread worth of croutons mixed in it and, like, a bottle of Hidden Valley Ranch on the top. You know what I'm saying? like that kind of salad. I'm not talking about the healthy salad. Now, another salad that I like, I think it's a little healthier, but probably not super healthy still, I don't know, uh, is Caesar salad. We got any Caesar salad fans in the room? Wow, we have some enthusiastic Caesar salad fans. I love it. This is a, you know, a nice picture of a Caesar salad there. Now, I used to love Caesar salad. We would go out to eat at an Italian restaurant. We ate out as a kid a lot, and I'd be like, ooh, I'm about to get a Caesar salad. i get some bread, a Caesar salad. Sometimes if I was feeling zany, I'd get two Caesar salads. I used both of my sides on a Caesar, on two Caesar salads. It was great. I loved it until I found out the truth. I think I was in middle school. Maybe I was in high school. When somebody let me know what was actually in this Caesar salad that I was consuming, more specifically, the Caesar dressing. You see, in Caesar dressing, there's lemon juice, there's olive oil, there's garlic, there's Dijon mustard, all good things, right? There's even this sauce that I don't really know how to pronounce super well, uh, Worcestershire, Worcestershire sauce. That's cool with me, whatever. But last but not least, in almost every single Caesar salad, Caesar dressing, there is emulsified anchovies. We have one anchovy fan in the back. But these just aren't any anchovies. They're emulsified anchovies. What does emulsified even mean? Like, that's so disgusting. When I found that out, I kid you not, I have never and will never eat Caesar salad ever again. When you see Caesar salad, you see this. This is what I see when I see Caesar salad, okay? Like, that's all that I see. That's all that I see. And you're like, well, wait, no, 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 no. Like, Caesar salad, like, you can have it without the, the dressing, without the anchovies. I promise you. Check the receipts, all right? I looked through all the different Caesar salad dressings, almost all the bottles, all the back, they say in some way it contains emulsified anchovies. And some of you are like, well, wait, no, you can have Caesar salad just without the Caesar dressing. (laughs) It's in the name, it's Caesar dressing. Caesar salad equals Caesar dressing. You can't have one without the other. I will never, I have never eaten another Caesar salad because you can't have Caesar salad without the Caesar dressing. And you're like, wow, is this guy about to talk about salads all morning? Yes, this is a TED Talk on salads. Welcome this morning. (laughs) Yeah, someone's excited about the salads. All right, no, we're continuing this series, as Torin mentioned, Sovereign. And the idea behind this series, Sovereign, is this, that you can't have the kingdom without the king. Kind of like Caesar salad, Caesar dressing. Now, many of us, myself included, we like to kind of like pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like, and then we kind of like reject the ones that we don't. Right, we want like all the benefits of the kingdom. We want like the glory and the love and the peace and the joy that comes with the kingdom of God. We just have a really hard time submitting and obeying and worshiping God with all of our lives, treating God as a king. We want the kingdom without the king. We're not the only ones to like pick up on this idea, right? Uh, there's a modern 21st century philosopher who goes by the name of Chancellor Jonathan Bennett. Uh, he also goes by the name of Chance the Rapper, and. Uh, the 11 a.m. got it. The 9 a.m., I don't think they're, they, they don't listen to Chance the Rappers. So they were like, what are you talking about? He, he has a line in a song. It says, don't believe in the king, believe in the kingdom, right? It's this idea that we want all the benefits that come with like the kingdom, but we don't, we don't believe in the idea of a king, the authority, submit, like all that stuff. Now, many of us, when we hear the phrase like kingdom of God, when we hear that, we think of like a physical space. We think of a, a kingdom like uh, the kingdom of Thailand or the United Kingdom. We think of a physical space, but the Greek word used to refer to the, the, or used in the phrase kingdom of God actually refers more specifically to like the rule of a king. So when the phrase kingdom of God is used, it's, it's less about like a physical space and more about just the state where God's sovereign rule is being exercised. And we see that most clearly, most beautifully in the life of Jesus. Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to rule like a king. In fact, the kingdom of God was Jesus' central message. When we think of Jesus, oftentimes we think of like a pithy moral saying or we think of like a fantastic miracle, but the kingdom of God was Jesus' central message. In the gospel of Luke alone, just in the gospel of Luke, the phrase kingdom of God appears 32 times. Everyone say 32. 32 times. Now in my Bible, that's like one time per page Jesus is mentioning this kingdom of God stuff. It was Jesus' central message. Now, part of this Jesus and kingdom of God stuff included this like cosmic battle over what it means to define good and evil. And what we see throughout the gospels over and over again is that Jesus is coming for like the core issues of the character of the people that he's interacting with. Jesus is convinced that the renewal and the restoration of humanity must involve overcoming and confronting the dark evil that we have stepped into and the lies that we have bought into, and the identities that we have lived into. And Jesus knows this, Jesus does this, because he's done this work himself. Last week, Torin kicked our series off by looking at the first temptation of Jesus. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second temptation of Jesus. Jesus has spent 40 days in the desert fasting, and now he is tempted by the devil. So if you could, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 5 to 8. And as you turn there, really quick, just to kind of set the context. Torin mentioned this a bit last week, but just to set the context. Jesus in the desert at, at these 40 days is continuing a story that began all the way at the beginning of, of this thing in the book of Genesis. We don't have time to get into like the logistics and the symbols of the language and all that stuff. But we do know that Luke and his audience would have seen Jesus' time in the desert in this way. We have a graph, actually. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. And then we have Israel in the wilderness. And then we have Jesus in the desert. All three key moments where humanity is being tested. Their worship, their trust of God being tested. And where Adam and Eve and Israel failed. Jesus must succeed. Jesus must overcome. All right, so let's read. Here we have Luke chapter four, verses five to eight. It says this. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to, you, or he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone that I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil comes to Jesus and he says, listen man, bow down and worship me and I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. And this temptation forces Jesus to ask two questions, forces him to ask himself two questions. And these two questions are two questions that we have to answer whether we're old or we're young, whether we're Christian or we're atheist, every single day almost, we have to answer these two questions. The first question that this temptation forced Jesus to ask was this, who are you? Notice what the devil says to Jesus just before what we read in verse three, at the beginning of all three of these temptations, which happened like boom, 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 we're dealing with them separately to focus, but they happen simultaneously almost. In verse three, the devil says, uh, If you are the son of God, like if you are who you say you are, if you are who you think you are, the devil is attacking Jesus' identity. The devil is attacking what Jesus thinks about himself. Just before this, Jesus had been baptized, not in a nice warm trough, but in a uh, whatever whatever that thing's called. I don't know, trough. Uh, But in the Jordan River, Jesus had been baptized. In the gospel of Luke, we read that, we see that. And upon his baptism, it says that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended and the voice of the Father spoke down in this divine reunion and said to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I think sometimes people wonder, well, why did God the Father need to say that? Why did God the Father decide to, to do that and say that in that moment? Was it because like John the Baptist over here who had just baptized? Did John the Baptist need to hear and know like who Jesus was? Or was it because maybe the people who were like watching the baptism, maybe they needed to know and hear who Jesus was? And I think those are all definite possibilities. But I also think that Jesus needed to be reminded of what God the Father said about him. Jesus was legitimately and truly human. In the Gospel of Luke, it says he grew in wisdom and understanding. And part of what it means to be human is to deal with this question of like, who am I? What does God say about me? What do others say about me? And so when Jesus is baptized, the voice of the father speaks over Jesus, reminding him, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Just before Jesus heads into the desert, he receives, he's reminded of this true identity. And that is why Satan attacks it. He attacks it right away. He wants Jesus to question his identity. He wants him to doubt what God has said about him. Notice though, Jesus doesn't even think twice. He doesn't even think twice. He knew what the Father said about him. He knew what his, who his identity was. This allowed him to trust God and worship God alone. Jesus found his identity in what God the Father said about him. And it's, this is what allowed, part of what allowed him to resist this temptation, to trust in God and to worship him alone. Because whoever we believe we are will dictate how we act and who we worship. I'll say that again. Whoever we believe we are will dictate how we act and ultimately who we worship. There was a study done in the 1960s in San Francisco by a psychologist named Robert Rosenthal. Any teachers in the room? Raise your hand if you're a teacher. Yeah, you may have heard of this study, okay? So what Robert Rosenthal did is he went into an elementary school in in San Francisco in the 1960s. And he took a, a normal IQ test and he kind of dressed it up, all right? He ripped the cover off. He put a different cover on it. And on that cover, it said, not just like normal IQ test, whatever the title of the IQ test is. It's, it said instead, Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition. And what he did was he told the teachers and the administration all that at the, at the school that this test had the unique ability to predict which students were about to experience a dramatic growth in their IQ. Now, in reality, this was just a normal IQ test. But to these teachers and students and everyone, it was the Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition. So what he did was he had the students take this test. Poor kids, you know, they just had to take this IQ test. And then what he did was he took those results, threw them out the window, and then he, he selected a random list of names of students to pass along to each of the teachers not based on their results, just random. And he told each of these teachers that these students, based on the results of the Harvard test of inflected acquisition, were about to experience what he called an intellectual bloom. Doesn't that sound nice? And then what he did was he followed the teachers and the students' interactions. For the next like two years, he followed the the students and the teachers. And what he found was that the expectations of the teachers had changed based on the results of this test that they had been passed along. He found that the students er, experienced a dramatic growth in IQ based on how the teachers interacted with these students. The teachers would give the students that they expected to succeed, they would give them more time to answer questions, they'd give more specific feedback, they'd give more approval, they consistently nodded and touched and smiled at these kids more, and the students responded. This verbal and nonverbal affirmation created a positive self-image and identity in each one of these students and and growth in IQ was experienced across the board. Because whatever we believe about ourselves, whoever we believe we are will dictate how we act and as we see in the life of Jesus, who we worship. Just, Just think about this for a second. Jesus needed to be reminded of what heaven says about him. Jesus needed to be reminded of his true identity, of what God the Father said about him. Jesus received that, and if Jesus needed that, if Jesus received and found his identity and what God the Father says about him, how much more do we? How much more do we need that? As I was preparing uh, for the message this week, I just sensed that there are some of us this morning who just need to hear what heaven says about us. Like there's some of us who have heard the lies that other people tell us. We've told ourselves those lies. We hear the voices of others. We stare in the mirror. We're constantly unsure of who we are. And I just sensed that this morning as I was praying that there's some of us in the the room that need to hear this. That you are a beloved child of the most high God that you are divinely and uniquely designed beautifully and wonderfully. And no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, you are dearly and passionately loved by the God who created you yesterday, today, and forevermore. I think there's some of us who need to hear that this morning. The stories that we tell ourselves are the stories that we live. Whoever we believe we are will dictate how we act, and who we worship. All right, I mentioned that there was a second question, right? First question that this temptation forced Jesus to ask was, who are you? The second question that this temptation forced Jesus to ask was, who or what will you worship? Who or what will you worship? I think one of the things that just gets lost in this temptation is that the thing that the devil is offering Jesus, Jesus has already been promised. The devil is offering Jesus to become the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus has already been promised that. He knows that. The only question was when and how. So the devil's temptation is simple. Like, hey, Jesus, don't you want to just like, let's cut this short, man. Let's take a shortcut. Let's avoid the rejection. Let's avoid the suffering. And let's just get, it, get you to some quick access to power. And Jesus wants to be a ruler of the kings of the Earth. The problem is not Jesus' desire to be ruler over the kingdoms of the Earth. That's what Jesus, ultimately, that will be his place. The issue is who He's being asked to worship to get to that point. The devil says, "Hey, the kingdoms belong to me. Bow down, worship me." And Jesus has a real problem with that. Notice what Jesus says, actually. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 immediately. He doesn't even think twice about worshiping the devil. He immediately says that it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's like a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 6.13. It's this powerful reinforcement of the very first commandment, the very first wedding vow that Yahweh gave with Israel, that you shall not worship any gods before me. And Jesus reinforces that. Jesus refuses to do the right thing the wrong way. He refuses to take a shortcut and to engage in false worship. And what we see in this temptation is Jesus' answer, a resounding answer to the question, who will you worship? And his resounding answer is this, God and God alone. And God honors this. In fact, one of the last pictures that we see of Jesus that our scriptures offer us is in Revelation chapter 1 verse five. It says that Je- it describes Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's the identical exalted position offered to Jesus by the devil at the end of his 40 days in the desert. The difference was Jesus worshiped God and God alone, and God honored that. The right. And as I was preparing uh, this message this week, I just sensed that there were others of us this morning who need to ask ourselves, who or what am I worshiping? Because make no mistake, whether you are a Christian or an atheist or somewhere in between or I don't know where you're at, we all worship someone. We all worship something. When I say worship, I don't mean like we sing to something. I don't mean that we, uh, you know, like we think of something. What I mean is we all build our lives around something. All of our lives, all of them have a person or a thing that we are living for. And I think some of us this morning need to ask who or what is that person? Who or what is that thing that I am worshiping, that I am building my life around? I think we need to redirect it, some of us. In the Old Testament, uh, there was this god named Baal. Everyone say Baal. Baal. Uh, it's like spelled like it's Baal, but instead of two L's, it's two A's. You can say it Baal or Baal, you know, whatever. I say Baal. Uh, and when, the thing with Baal uh, was when you worshiped Baal, along with other pagan gods in the Old Testament, but specifically Baal, when you worship Baal, it was solely based on your experience. In fact, we have a, a graph here. I want to kind of walk us through. Graph sounds boring. I promise it's not boring. Uh, we have a graph here. You see, worship of Baal, building your life around Baal, it was solely conditional on your experience. It was when you felt like it and when it was convenient. So when you, need, when you were anxious about the crops, you'd go to visit the temple. When you were really happy and joyful, you'd go and praise the wine god. But other than that, it it really didn't matter. You kind of got on with your ordinary life. Worship of Baal only impacts or only impacted part of your life. And I think that some of us this morning, I know some of us this morning because I know I'm guilty of this myself, we worship God in a similar way. We build our lives around God in a similar way when it's convenient, when we want to. It's conditional on our experience and it only impacts part of our life. But friends, worship, Building our life around something isn't something that we just experience here on a Sunday morning by singing. Worship is something that we do. So worship of Jesus looks the opposite of the worship of Baal. Worship of Jesus is unconditional on your experience. Worship of Jesus isn't dependent on your feelings or your convenience. And worship of Jesus encompasses every aspect of life. Eugene Peterson says this, I love Eugene, that's my guy, he's like my my spiritual grandpa. He says that worship of Jesus means being present to the living God who penetrates the whole of human life. Mm, So good. Worship of Jesus involves everything, not just our Sunday morning. We can take that graph down. Worship of Jesus involves our checking account. It involves our savings account. It involves the way that we spend our time. It involves the thoughts that occupy our mind. It involves the dreams that get us excited. It involves our bodies and the way that we treat them and the way that we use them. It involves our habits, the daily, weekly, monthly habits that we build. Worship of Jesus involves everything. And as I was preparing this week, I just sensed there were some of us who need to redirect our worship. We need to stop worshiping like we worship Baal, and we need to start worshiping like we worship Jesus. We need to build our lives around someone that's it's not conditional on our experience. And it impacts our entire lives, not just when it feels good, when it's convenient, and only a little sliver. And so I don't, I don't know what that is for you. But I think some of us this morning, we need to come and we need to move our entire lives, our entire lives under the reign of a loving and grace-filled Jesus. There may be some of us in this room who haven't submitted any. Like, we, none of our life is worshiping Jesus. None of our life is built around Jesus. And you may, you may need to do that this morning. Come and move your entire life under the reign of a loving and graceful Jesus. Some of us in this room may just may have some things that you're kind of holding to the side. That you're like, well, God, like, you can have this and this and this. But I, I'm going to hold this one in my pocket. Like, I got this one. This week. <laughs> Whoa. Sorry about that. <clears throat> you know, voice change, it's really hard, you know, dealing with that. <laughs> this week, uh, I was uh, thinking about this. This was on my mind, you know, like, what are the things, what are the things, I'm sure there are areas in my life that I just, I haven't submitted to God, to God's kingly rule in my life. I've built this area of my life around God, what God wants for it. And uh, I have a twin brother, his name's Logan, he's here. Logan, raise your hand. Yeah, there he is, guys. Okay, so uh he's and I love Logan. Like I love and respect Logan more than all of you. Okay, I love you guys, but Logan's awesome. I love Logan. He's like my womb mate, right? We're twins. He was my roommate in college. Like he's the best. And uh we were playing some tennis this weekend on Friday. On Friday, we were playing tennis uh, inside, although we could have played outside, right? That weather. Oh, so good. Um Tennis was not so good though. On the inside, uh, we it, it went pretty bad actually. We're really competitive people. We got into a big argument. Uh, you know, we're we're in this like indoor tennis area, right? And there, most of the people that like play tennis in this area, like they're pretty classy. They know what they're doing. Like. They got, they got like lessons that they're going on, you know, and they're like paying for these people to, you know, the club pros to be helping them. And Logan and I are just like smashing, you know, stuff when we get mad and we're screaming at each other. It's just, it's not a great look, to be honest. And this, this Friday, it got really bad. One of us was playing bad. One of us was playing well. We're arguing about that was in, that was out. It's just like bad. It's just bad news bears all around, okay? And that by the end of it, we're, we're storming off. I go to, like, the locker room to change. He goes outside. He's like, I'm, I'm done, you know, like, done. It's, it's, oh, I'm so annoyed. But uh, I drove him there, so we had to ride together. God's providence. <laughs> like, this was God's plan. And so we get in the car. We start to have a, a really hard but a really good conversation just about the way that we, like, the way we treat one another. And just some of our past and some, you know, some of the scars that we've built up relationally and and some of the the dynamics that are just hard and that are complicated. And and it was so, it was so, so good. And on my way home, I was was driving and I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about this, this, you know, submitting to God's kingly rule and what are the areas of my life. And I just, I, I felt God say like, Austin, you need to submit your friendship, your brotherhood with Logan to me. Like you've submitted so many of your relationships. You've built so many of your relationships around God and the way you think God wants you to treat them and you try your very best and you fail all the time, but you have failed to move this relationship that's so special to you under my rule. You're still treating Logan like you did when you were a seventh grade boy and trust me, you do not want to be treated by me when I was in seventh grade. Like I was a jerk, I was annoying, I was just like the worst. And I felt God say, like, Austin, move that under my rule. Submit that under the love and grace of Jesus. And I think that there's a lot of us this morning that have areas or maybe our whole lives that we just need to move. We need to move under the love and the grace of Jesus and say, I submit. Like, I give it all. I'm all in. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a relationship that you have hanging over your head that you need to submit. Maybe it's the way you spend your money or the way you don't spend your money. Maybe it's the way you spend your time or a habit that you've built up, something with your body. I I don't know what it is, but I think some of us, we need to come and we need to move our entire lives under the reign of a loving and graceful Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to move into a time of worship. We're going to respond in worship. And as we worship, if you, if you need to be prayed for, if you need to hear what heaven says about you this morning, or you need to move your entire life or just a part of your life or whatever it is under the reign of a loving and graceful Jesus, and you need to respond this morning, I invite you to come forward. Our, our prayer team will be up here. Torn is up here. I will be up here. We would love to pray with you. If you're watching online, we would love you can request prayer in the chat, but let's respond in worship this morning as we seek to listen to who God says we are and then build our lives around him and him alone, because he is the sovereign king. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for just another Sunday, another day to gather and to worship and to hear the transformation that you are doing in so many lives in our church, just the four lives here, Colin and Greta and Hudson and John. God, what you have been doing in their lives, you want to do in all of our lives. When we're baptized, our whole body goes underwater, not part of it. And so God, I just pray that image over our church, God, would would each and every single one of us just be immersed and submit and build our entire lives around you, submit to your kingly rule in our lives. God if there's anyone in this room this morning who just needs to hear what you say about them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come in power and that you would that you would affirm that you would speak truth, that you would that you would uh, remind them of who you say that they are. And Holy Spirit, would you just help help many of us who are trying to do this, we're trying to submit, submit we're trying to surrender. Give us give us the wisdom, give us the peace, give us the courage to do that. Take these things from us. Help us build our lives around you and you alone. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that I pray these things to you be the power and the glory and the honor forever and ever and ever. Amen.